Welcome to The Math of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our 41st episode, I'll be talking to Kieran Shiak, co-creator of new comic Mossy, and one half of the Good Egg podcast family, about The Flash and other heroes he has known. Along the way, we'll discuss the short-lived WWF light heavyweight division, the life and times of John Fox, the Flash of several futures, and how just because something is a cliche doesn't make it bad. We'll finish the show with our signature cocktail and let you know how you can become a guest on The Math of You. We join this conversation already in progress. Why don't you say who you are and what makes you a beautiful and unique snowflake? My name is Kieran Shiak. I'm the writer of a comic called Mossy, which is currently on Kickstarter. It's an all-ages adventure comedy horror book about a little girl and her eight-foot-tall swamp monster best friend. I also am one half of Good Egg Podcasts with my fiancée Helena Hart, and that entails Journey's Misery, which is a comics continuity podcast, Zero Hour, which is a personal history of comics podcast. Animal Crackers, which is an animal facts podcast, and a co-production with Al Collins' Intuit podcasts called The Monster Society of Comics, which is a roundtable discussion. I'm also a freelance writer and editor. I was at Comics Alliance until that was closed down. I work occasionally for Polygon, for The Guardian, for Comic Resources, for Nerdly, and a couple of the places wherever they'll have me. You're an exceptionally busy person, and especially your podcast output is just like astronomical and I'm always kind of a little bit in awe as someone who produces like one weekly podcast at the sheer amount of content that you folks put out over at Good Egg Podcasts. It does kind of blow my mind. We try, like some weeks are harder than others and I'll get on like, I don't want to say manic because that's an, like an important word to mean something, but I'll have like bouts where of like creativity, inspiration and motivation where for a couple of weeks we'll pump out episodes or pump out bonus content. But at the moment it's more of a lull where it's a bit more like pulling teeth, where I'm just trying to get the main episodes out and get something out for Patreon supporters. But yeah, sometimes it's really, really easy. Sometimes it's really, really hard, as I'm sure you can relate. Absolutely. And for those of you who have listened to the Good Egg Podcast family and have not supported on Patreon, just to let you know, they watch all of Batman the Animated Series. It's great. We've not done one of those episodes for about two months. We're going to get back to that soon. We've done four so far. We try and do it as often as we can, but we're, we're going to get back to it soon. It's, it's been a tough time with comic signs closing down and all that sort of stuff, but we're trying to get back to a, a good schedule. Yes, RIP, pouring one out for Comics Alliance. But yes, I, um, <laughs> I didn't mean to put you on the spot for that. Like I said, you're absolutely putting out a mountain of content. And just pulling aside the curtain for a moment, you're also, and, I, and please take this in the absolute best way possible, you're a relentless self-promoter in a way that I really admire, in the way that you've gotten a lot of your work out there and really are very forthcoming with, hey, I've done this thing, I'd really like you to come and see it. It's something that I've taken a lot of inspiration from with my work. Well, thank you. It's 
kind of weird like hearing these things like being on podcasts and people giving you like their take on who you are as like a creative or what have you it's all a lot of times it's stuff that I hadn't considered about myself but then you say like yeah I guess I am it's not really from like I don't really consider myself like like a Stanley like Mark Miller kind of <laughs> Is more of a gnarled and brittled knees. Like, please, just, 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 just give us one retweet. <laughs> just like, what, just what? Please, just, just, just check it out. It's more. It comes more from a place of desperation than enthusiasm. I think. But if it, if it doesn't come off that way, then that's fantastic. If it comes off like a Stanley sort of thing, then I'm happy with that. <laughs> There's an Australian expression called fig jam, which is saying like you you've got a fig jam. Fig jam stands for fuck. I'm great. Just ask me. <laughs> And I think it's something that a lot of people who are making good stuff, especially on the internet, need to embrace because it's one of those things where it's, it's a huge hurdle to get past to be like, no, what I'm making is good and I think it's worth your time. And that's something that I'm slowly, slowly getting better at. I've still yet to create a Facebook fan page because then my parents will see it. But yeah, maybe I'll get there someday. Yeah, I used to have like real, real confidence issues and I still do all the time. But when I was like 19, 20, 21, I just decided it doesn't like none of it, none of it matters. None, none of it matters just... Like, it's the old, old, like, cliché expression, like, fake it till you make it. Just kind of pretend to be a confident, well-adjusted person, and maybe you'll fall ass backwards into being one. Uh, <laughs> there's a uh, quote from Acord that is in my, like, it's in my byline, like, my profile's everywhere, it's in my Twitter thing. I wish in the past I tried more things, because now I know that being in trouble is a fake idea. <laughs> and that's it, like, yeah. being in trouble is a fake idea. Like, if all the stuff, like, when I was a kid, or, like, I wish I did try more things, because so much, in hindsight, so much of it doesn't matter. And I try and pass that on to my cousin a little bit, even though my nan doesn't really like it. I say like <laughs> as long as you like getting your work done and you're fine you can just be a kid it's fine and it's something I try and do now as an adult just try more things and put myself out there anyone out there listening who would refer to themselves as an aspiring something I tell you what what's a real good thing business cards if you have a business card that says this is what I am I found this when I was starting out the first time I got myself like a business license in an ABN to be a photographer and sell my work I went to like Moo cards or something and just got like a packet of 100 business cards and it was just it had a picture of a camera on it and it had my name and my contact details on my website and it said Lucas Brown photographer and I was able to hand that to people and that gives you that that boost of no here it's like a psychic paper you know yeah you mentioned the word aspiring and I think aspiring is a bullshit word like, yeah you're not an aspiring writer you're not an aspiring photographer there's a guy on the bachelor at the moment who's an aspiring drummer sorry <laughs> the bachelorette just like, oh I you, remember that guy that guy's the worst he just got kicked off last week but yeah just say just say that you are because you are if you're doing it then you are oh my god I'm just I, like I remembered seeing that guy and think is that guy he was the one who fought with the waboon guy right yeah 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 like equal candidates for just like what are you doing why are you a person but yeah the aspiring drummer thing I just imagined it as being like I hope at one point someday to drum. Yeah. I have not yet. I've picked up a stick and I've walked towards a drum. I haven't quite made it. Maybe by September, I'll even like stand near a drum. Yeah. And he was like, like a physical trainer or something. And they put aspiring drum. I don't think they get to choose what their job is because one of them's job is Tickle Monster. Yes. And he's always going to be known as Tickle Monster from now on. What is with that guy? But like, Ugh. that can't be like. He didn't ask to be, yes, name me the Tickle Monster. It's just, <laughs> like, he described himself as a Tickle Monster, like, in passing. And that that's who he is now. <laughs> you just imagine that, yes, 
I, I am embracing my true form. <laughs> yes, father. I will become a tickle monster. <laughs> oh, that's monstrous. But yeah, I realize because I watch a lot more reality television now that I live with Kimiko because she loves Survivor and she loves The Bachelor and she loves America's Next Top Model and it's weird step sibling Australia's Next Top Model. I think I have a weird caveat with reality television where I only like it if the people are not acting like they're on a reality show. Mm -hmm. Like for example, in Survivor, I like the people who are treating it like they're actually trying to survive. I don't want to hear about alliances. I don't want to hear about, oh, that's how you play the game. Oh, I have a secret stratagem or all these things. I'm like, no, I want to see people have to work together to build a fire. I want to see you have to gather food and win challenges. That's what I want. Like we watched, it was one of these America's Next Top Models and people were coming in and saying, oh, I'm already this kind of model, but I want to up my game. And I'm like, no, no, you're, you're missing the premise of the show. It should be someone who's not a model, and they make that person a model. And I know I'm in the minority in this, but it's the kind of thing that bugs me. We don't watch much reality, we don't watch much TV, to be honest, but we only, we watch, like, Total Divas, Total Bellas, and then we watch The Bachelorette because we listen to Rose Buddies. So we'll watch I would say, yeah, Rose Buddies, yeah. And then listen to Rose Buddies, like, immediately afterwards. Trying to explain Total Divas to people, and being like, well, it's it's a fake as reality reality show set in the fake real world of professional wrestling. I think especially now, they've gone away from, oh, it's the backstage stuff, to now it's its own thing. And watching the evolution of that show has been really interesting. Because, I mean, think about it. You had people, like, like think about what happened with Eva Marie and JoJo in the first season. Like, they were training and, like, talking to Stephanie McMahon and stuff which was very much a different story than let's just follow these people around and see how they deal with, in Eva's case, her horrible family. I get kind of hung up on Total Divas trying to like place the continuity of it because they'll do stuff like, they'll show like the SummerSlam set, but then there'll be like a backstage scene and like Wade Barrett will walk by with the Intercontinental title. <laughs> and you're like, no, but he wasn't champion at SummerSlam. He lost the title like a month earlier to Kofi Kingston. Why is Wade Barrett there with the title if it's SummerSlam? <laughs> And they do a bunch of stuff like that where they play with the time frames in ways that don't make sense if you watch wrestling. Yeah, and especially when it comes around with who's injured when and who's rehabbing when, looking to come back when, and then things get bumped and it's like, oh, so, so that, that didn't happen, I guess. I still think it, it was a genius move on the Eat Network's part to say, well, as long as the show is running, you have to feature the people that are on Total Divas in your actual WWE storylines. Because a less canny company wouldn't have thought about that, and it would be very easy for WWE to, for example, have lost interest in someone, and then would put them on the back burner and never put them on TV, leaving E with a star that isn't a star in WWE's eyes. Oh, do you mean like Rosa Mendes? Oh, <laughs> touche. I got nothing on. When was the last time like, Rose, like I know she had, I know she had a baby and stuff, but she was on Total Divas well before she was pregnant, and she was never on TV. Not, not to completely blow up your thing, but yeah, there, there is synergy between the E network. Like it's all NBC Universal ultimately. Sci-Fi and USA Network and the E Network, they're all under the, the NBC Universal banner. So there is that easy cross-pollination and synergy. Yeah, I, I could just see it, it them easily becoming, you know, anyone featured on, you know, your Total Diva stuff could easily becoming someone like, you know, Maven, mm -hmm. where it's just like, turned up for a while, oh hey, he's still here, right, and then he goes away. That's kind of what JoJo was for a little bit when she came back as an announcer, and she's really good now. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, she's a much better announcer than she was a wrestler. Mm -hmm. it's, it's good to see people find their niche in different parts of the business. She, she was like, in that one match, she was in like a Survivor Series match, 
and she got an elimination. In like the little little bit that she did, she was all right. Like taking into account how little training she'd had, she did like a couple of like arm drags and like a schoolboy, and that was it. But it was it was impressive considering. I thought I remember being impressed at the time. Yeah. So Karen, let's start with the basics. Whereabouts did you grow up? I grew up in Stratford, Manchester, in England, which is it's where Morrissey's from. And it's also <laughs> where do you know Carl Pilkington? Yes, I do. Yeah, it's where he's from as well. Sometimes I think that, like, you know, like, you sound different in your head as you do recorded. I think my recorded voice sounds somewhat like Carl Pilkington, which makes sense considering we're both from Stratford. But yeah, it's just like a working class little part of Manchester. Very, very grey, very, <laughs> like, lots of council estates. And the, yeah, it's just, it's just a normal, like, little... It's not like a suburb, it's just like an old part of Manchester. Like, I, I don't really know what word you'd use to describe it just like a like a, like a district or like an, like an area i don't know yeah i've just googled it and surprisingly like i'm looking at some of these pictures and i'm seeing the same kind of brick row houses that i saw in places like reading which are again has that kind of it's a place you go through on the way to another place yeah it's on the edges of things and then you keep going pretty much like it's linked to because there's like like carved into like blocks not blocks in like the New York sense but you've got like Stratford and then like underneath Stratford you've got Ermston and then like Flixton and going on that way they're all just like kind of basically the same and then going towards town you've got like Charlton which is next to Stratford but it's like quite nice and then Charlton links to like Wally Range and Didsbury which are alright and then they're all just kind of the same really in growing up in this place that was kind of the same whilst also being slightly grey what sort of kid were you? I was just like a chubby little nerdy kid that was just trying to get by I guess both my parents are disabled so I guess that's like a different childhood than most my father has uh, cerebral palsy and quite severe asthma and severe eczema and my mum has cerebral palsy and epilepsy so she'd have fits sometimes and I'd have to look after her so I was always getting like awards and stuff like like bravery awards but it just always seemed like business as usual because that's just my mum chest fit sometimes oh wow yeah you've spoken about it on your various podcasts a little bit but yeah that's something that like you've mentioned being really mindful of representation of disabled folks in media and I could certainly see how you know growing up like that it really kind of attune you to that sort of thing yeah it, it wasn't super easy all the time just like it like living with my parents is fine but we'd get like names called at them in the street stuff thrown at the house like stones thrown at the windows and stuff just like general like abuse from like the little scally kids so it was it wasn't always great nah people suck i wish i could articulate it better than that but i just hear stuff like that and i just go Ugh, people some people are awful yeah it's it, it is always like i, I don't I kind of don't remember a lot of my childhood. And you've spoken in a particular episode, I've been listening to Journey into Misery from the very beginning, and there was a special episode you did with your grandfather and how he had gotten you into comics. Yeah, my granddad, he passed away uh, almost exactly two years ago. I was very, very close with him. And he, he got me into superheroes when I was a kid because he really, really liked superheroes when he was growing up. And I was the first of his like children and grandchildren that showed an interest when he tried to get them into it. So it was a, a shared thing. And it started with like, the X-Men cartoon and then he got me like, X-Men comics from like the newsagents. And then in like 2000, when I was 10, we went to go see the first X-Men film together because he was a big film buff. He loved films. 
love cinema. So we'd all we'd always go to the cinema together, especially when in like ninety seven they put the traffic centre, which is this big shopping centre. It was like walking distance. We'd go to the cinema all the time. I remember going to see the first X Men film with him, and then from then on, like we'd always go see superhero films together, even when I was an adult. Especially because I got a job at a cinema for a couple of years, so I'd just take him to go see everything he wanted. And that's really nice. I have a soft spot for uh, grandfather and grandkid stories because my grandfather used to take me to learn how to swim when I was 14, long past when I was probably should have learned. And I have you know, very fond memories of that, so I love hearing that kind of stuff. Yeah, well, I, I still can't swim, so you've got that on me. <laughs> I thought I knew, but then I came to Australia where literally everyone learns how to swim, and I realized like, I could probably save my life if I absolutely had to. But I still don't surf or anything like that. Yeah, with, with regards to my granddad, it always sounds like a sad story, but I think it's kind of a happy story. Like the last time I saw him before he passed away was about 10 days before he passed. I took him to go see Avengers Age of Ultron, which isn't a really good film. I didn't really enjoy it, but it was worth it because like, I reckon I had the best last day with him out of everyone in the family. Aww. You know, to kind of complete that circle from like him taking me when I was a kid to me taking him now I'm an adult. That's really lovely. Like, former guest of the show, Bill L. Shelby, talked at length about their mother and grandmother being, like, sort of their gateways into comic books and nerd stuff and science fiction. And it was one of those things where, like, my father always read Batman and Superman when he was a kid because he was a kid in the 50s and literally everybody was reading that stuff. And he loved The Shadow and, and things like that. But what I didn't realize is that my mom was secretly a comic book nerd because I remember thinking back to, I think it would have been like maybe like 2000, 2001, and they were just announcing that there was going to be the first Fantastic Four film. And me being the, you know, high-handed 19-year-old who knew everything about everything, I kind of sneered and I went, ugh, I'm sure it's going to be terrible. Who'd want to go see a movie about the Fantastic Four? And then my mother went, I would. I went, why? It's going to suck. And she went, well, you clearly didn't sit up reading them with a flashlight under the blankets, so you can keep your opinions to yourself. That's, that's a cool one. I'd, I'd never thought that my United Church minister mother would have ever read comic books in her time, but there you go. We live and learn. <laughs> so growing up, what sort of things were getting your attention? What were the things that you were really interested in that were you know, that you would talk about with your friends or that you would really fixate on when you were younger? I turned 10 in 2000, so that was a big year both for Pokemon and for pro wrestling. So it's kind of like a super cliche answer for like a millennial, but that is what it is. That was all anyone was doing in the like the playground at my school, playing Pokemon, trading cards, and putting on like wrestling matches on like the field. <laughs> Ah, yes. I actually still have a slight scar on my right cheek because when I was in grade two, we would do the same thing. We would basically play pro wrestling, which was basically us just kind of throwing each other at each other. And it was a wonder we didn't get hurt sooner. But I had a moment where I was really excited to go out and do this at recess. And so the bell rang and I went outside and I saw one of my friends who I would normally do this kind of play wrestling with down at the bottom of the stairs. And I ran down the stairs and sort of screamed and flew at him. And he, being a year and a half older than me, caught me, turned me upside down and would have done a body slam, except he didn't turn me over first. And so I kind of went like face first into the gravel and <laughs> immediately burst into tears. And everyone's parents had to be called, and then there was no more wrestling in the schoolyard. It's always the, it's always the way. One, one, <laughs> one person ruins it for everyone. <laughs> and that person was me. Although I did get to go to, like, to leave school that day and go to my dad's work with a huge bandage on my face, which had stopped hurting at that point, but still looked cool, and I got to pretend like I had been in a fight or something. <laughs> I remember 
not getting Pokemon straight away. So I remember being in like assembly in like year five or six and just bullshitting and saying that I had it and <laughs> based on like I had like a I had like a magazine. So I was like bullshitting and saying that I had it and I remember I don't know exactly what I said or what was said, but I remember getting eventually called out and like shown up for being the liar that I was. I remember exactly where I was when I found out pro wrestling was staged. I remember it was, I was in year five, so I would have been like nine going on ten. And it was the area where like you'd come in, you hang up your coats before you'd go into the class. And someone was, I remember a friend, a kid called Joseph Mitchell. We were talking about Rikishi for some reason. And he just, I don't remember exactly what he said, but he said something along the lines of, oh yeah, it's all fake. I remember my reaction was along the lines of, oh, okay. Aww. And it didn't change. It didn't. It didn't change anything. It didn't upset me. It didn't disappoint me. It didn't dampen my enjoyment of it. It was just, oh, okay, that kind of makes sense. It's still good. It doesn't stop it being good. <laughs> so I, I didn't have that kind of like glass shatter moment to strain upon of being upset about it. It's just a fact that I accepted rather quickly. Yeah, I'm trying to think if. I can remember when that happened to me, but I can remember getting really angry at my sister because I was watching, I think I was watching like WCW, which I would rarely watch because we didn't usually get it on the channels we had. And I was watching, I think it was Marcus Alexander Bagwell was being attacked and Sting had to come and rescue him because that's the kind of thing that happened back then. My sister getting annoyed at watching it and just going, you know, it's all fake, right? And just getting upset because it had never even occurred to me. Mm -hmm. Like it was one of those things where you don't question the reality of what you're seeing because much in the same way as I feel like I've discussed it a lot with a lot of people where I never questioned, I never thought that Batman 66 was a joke. Yeah, It was just, it was Batman. This is what's happening. And it's funny sometimes, but, you know, it's that. When you see Robin's in danger at the end of the episode and he's been eaten by Poison Ivy's Venus flytrap. If it was Poison Ivy, I've yet to find that episode. I was like, oh, okay, that's scary. Robin's going to die. Not, oh, it's a silly comedy show. He'll be fine next time. That kind of meta-thinking wasn't really there for me. Mm -hmm. So when my sister said, that's fake, I was so angered about it because I was just like, it had never occurred to me until then. Now it's in my mind. And now I can't not think it. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was never really a concern for me. I think partly because like, we were doing it in like the playground. I was like, okay, we're pretending to do it and they're pretending to do it. Yeah, there you go. I, I didn't put a lot of thought into much things back then. So who were your favourite wrestlers back then? My favourites were... I really, really liked Mick Foley, but he had retired by the time I started watching it. But I got his first autobiography, Have a Nice Day, in like a, a car boot sale. And I read that cover to cover and I loved it and it instantly became my favourite. But a lot of it was just, it, it depended on like who was a face at the time. I liked The Rock, I like, I remember I started watching before Austin came back. So when Austin came back, that was a big deal. I really, really liked American Badass Undertaker. I liked Chris Jericho, I liked Kurt Angle. Uh, the Hardy Boys were, were really, really big for me. And me and my friend Carl, who was like my best friend, he didn't go to the same school as us, but he lived around the corner from me. He was like a year younger. He had a PlayStation 1 with the Smackdown games and he had two controllers. Oh yes. So we'd play SmackDown together as the Hardy Boys, and because he had both controllers, he'd be Jeff and I'd be Matt. And then, like when we were like wrestling, like with his little brother, he'd be Jeff and I'd be Matt. <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned that. I was smiling the whole way through that because I had the same situation, but it was in my first year of university, and it was that my like I had watched wrestling as a kid, and I had kind of fallen out of favor midway through the Attitude Era because I didn't like some of the programming that was happening, and so I'd kind of fallen out of favor with it. 
And I went to university and suddenly I was around people who remembered some of the same stuff I did. And my friend Mark, again, had a PlayStation, had SmackDown 2, Know Your Role, which had the Hardys in it. And I didn't recognize most of the characters. And I would say, oh, who are these guys? And he's, oh, they're really cool. They're really fast. You'll like them. And then we found, we went to Blockbuster Video and we found one of the first TLC compilations, which had like highlights of all the, the ladder matches and the tag team tables match leading up to TLC. And we watched that just enraptured. And then from there, I started getting back into wrestling again. And so, yeah, it was that game and the Hardys that was kind of the inspiration for that. And yes, many, <laughs> many pairs of black vinyl with white stitching baggy cargo pants were purchased from terrible stores in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada, thanks to the Hardy Boys. Yeah, the, the, the Hardys are big for us because they appeal to that demographic, really. Like as much as they do now, they especially did in 2000 when all that stuff was cool. Those sorts of like uh, my mesh shirts and like Jeff's like the sleeves that he'd wear with like, they kind of like, what's the word I'm looking for? Fishnets. Yeah, kind of, there's somewhere fishnets, but they would be like long socks that he would cut bits out of and then put other socks over top of them and cut bits out of those so you get like a multi-layered effect. Mm -hmm. And they looked really cool on Jeff Hardy and I can tell you they did not look good in real life. <laughs> Or at least they didn't on me. Yeah, I pretty much liked whoever was a face at the time because like, I never really liked Triple H until he came back in 2002, Royal Rumble, mm -hmm. like around the Royal Rumble 2002. And there was this big hype for Triple H coming back. And it was when he came back with like the denim jacket over the leather jacket kind of look. <laughs> yes, yes. But I remember like those promo packages, those hype packages were so effective. I like wrote down on my calendar like, this is the day Triple H is coming back. And I got so excited for Triple H coming back because... I just kind of liked who they told me to like. I wasn't really going into like the cool heels or anything like that back then. I think the cool heel thing where it's like you learn to like the bad guy, it's very much a bit of a, like it's come out of the smart community a little bit, but now it's something where it's like you, when you've been watching for a while, you can see what they're doing and what you like about it. My thing was always, I always followed the Intercontinental Champions as opposed to the main guys because those matches were faster and they were more exciting. And it was just something where it was like, sure, I would watch Hulk Hogan and the Ultimate Warrior take on Sergeant Slaughter and General Adnan and Colonel Mustafa, who was the Iron Sheik, and it never occurred to me then. But what I really wanted to see is I wanted to see Bret Hart with the Intercontinental title, because those matches would always be fast and fun and get my attention. Yeah, I really, really like the light heavyweight stuff that was going on in like 2000. Oh yeah, yeah. Because we had, on Channel 4, which was free, we had something like Heat, and you'd get a lot of like S.A. Rios versus Takamichi Noku matches. Oh yes. On Sunday Night Heat, so I like those a lot, and like the cruiserweight stuff, or light heavyweight as it was in the early two thousands. The WWF. It still amazes me that they basically made that title because they signed Takamichi Noku, and they're like, we're just going to give it to him and see what he does. And the fact that, however many years later, there's Taka as part of Kai and Tai as these comedy heels with a terrible kind of racist gimmick in these awful vignettes and it's like oh it's really kind of a sad thing to see yeah because yeah they, they were putting on top tier matches yeah it's, it's very very sad there's like a Wrestlemania 14 match it's Takamichi Noku versus S.A. Rios but S.A. Rios isn't S.A. Rios mm. yet he's like I think he's under a mask <laughs> maybe or just he has a different name and it's uh, one of the best matches on that Wrestlemania I think it's 14 I could be wrong it's quite early in the Attitude Era yeah he was Aguila then oh yeah which was before he 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 had the bright red hair as Cesarios. Yeah, that, that rings a bell. Oh, that was the same same year as the dumpster match. Mm-hmm. 
with Cactus Jack and Terry Funk and the New Age Outlaw. Yeah. See, I'm, I'm much better at remembering this stuff now because I may have mainlined all of the Attitude Era podcast. Mm. Uh, hi, Kevin, if you're listening. I did a thing on like a website that I used to kind of, it was kind of like a blog, kind of like a supplement thing to like the first podcast I ever did. So one of the articles I did on that was 30 Years of WrestleMania, where I figured out how many weeks were before WrestleMania 30. And then I watched one WrestleMania a week and wrote about it in the lead up to WrestleMania 30. But that would have been like three or four years ago now. Wow. So those memories are all kind of hazy. <laughs> I think they'd start to bleed into each other after a while. Mm-hmm. And this is before the network as well. Oh, right. So, Kieran, one of the other things that I wanted to talk about when I heard you were coming on the show is you're kind of renowned as a person who loves The Flash. Yeah. And I kind of wanted to, because I had never really discussed, because I too am a fan of The Flash, but only in kind of a, like a backward looking, tangential sort of way. I am not the intense Flash fan that some people are. And I pretty much enjoy most things of it that I find, specifically Justice League and Justice League Unlimited Flash, which in my opinion is the best Flash. How did you come across The Flash and what did The Flash come to mean to you? I went to The Flash because when I got into monthly comics, I started out with Marvel. And I was reading like all the Civil War stuff and all of the like the initiative stuff that came after it. But then there was two big events in like 2007, 2008 uh, DC Comics. One of them was the Snestrakor War, and the other was the death of Bart Allen at the end of the Flash Fastest Man Alive short-lived ongoing series. So I remember I was, at that time, I would have been on the Newsarama forums, and I remember like people freaking out that they'd killed Bart off. So I, I looked into Bart, and I looked inside the Flash family, and I read All Flash number one by it's Mark Wade with a bunch of artists, but mainly it's Carl Kershaw. So I read All Flash number one, and it just like jumped out at me as this like vibrant, colourful comic with this Hitler really likable hero who because Wally came back at like the same time Bart died, Wally came back from the Paradise Dimension he went to in Infinite Crisis, which is what All Flash is about. So I read All Flash and then I kinda of went back and just read as much Mark Wade and Jeff Johns Flash as I could and just fell in love with the concept and especially like the Flash family concept. So like Wally Bart Jesse, Johnny, Max, Jay, XS, John Fox, all that sort of stuff. I, I just think it's interesting that the Flash family stuff is what got your attention. When I feel that that's often a very large barrier to entry, how much of a continuity swirl the entire Flash universe and the Flash family is. Did you find that challenging at all, or did you just kind of wait in? That's what appealed to me about shared universes, was that there was this like, big treasure trove of information and stories to like dive into and dig around in and like find the ones that I liked so I like learning the new things and the, the more Flash characters the better that's what was really appealing to me the idea that there was this kind of legacy that went like into the past and into the future and like sideways with different ancillary members like I do I do Journey to Misery which is a continuity podcast like I'm a massive continuity nut and that kind of really started with the Flash Wasn't Journey into Misery started because of a question about the Flash? Yeah, it was. It was. It wasn't just a question about the flash. It was Helen asking me how many flashes are there. <laughs> so she, we were watching the TV show, and I started explaining to her. And I started like, live tweeting, my explaining it, and I was like, "This could be a podcast." So like, I put some feelers out. Like, would people want to listen to this? And that's how James Mitchell started. So for those who may not know the Flash, I'm going to pick one at random. Just to, I like I think this is a good example. I know this cuz I think he just came up on one of the panel president specials that Warwick Ajax did. Just explain like in like a few short sentences who John Fox is. 
just to give people an idea of what base level flash continuity is like. John Fox is the flash of the, I want to say 26th century? Something like that, yeah. 26th, 27th, who came back in time and served as the flash of the 20th century while Wally West was missing in the Speed Force or something approximating that. That happens a lot in Wage Run. When you sit down and read Wage Run in one big chunk, it does get super samey. I think Matt Wilson said it. Whereas, like, every wage story can kind of be summed up with, and there's this new Flash. <laughs> a lot of that means a lot of the arcs end with Wally, like, getting lost in the Speed Force and, to, and using Linda as a lightning rod, which is stuff I love. I love that stuff. But John Fox replaces Wally West for a while as the Flash of the late 20th century. And then, inspired by his time, like, travelling through time, he goes forward to the 853rd century to join the Justice Legion A in DC 1 million. And is the flash of oh, I, can't, I can't remember which planet is John Fox's. I think it's Pluto. <laughs> no, no, no. Pluto is the Arkham world. I, I don't remember off the top of my head. <laughs> but each member of the Justice Legion A has their own planet that they're the superhero of, essentially. Yeah. So there you have it. You have a future superhero who becomes a present superhero who becomes a super far flung future superhero. Also, at some point, he meets a bunch of androids who refer to themselves as speed metal which is a great idea, but also kind of dumb. Yeah, that, that, that just sums up like that era of Flash, really. just great ideas that are kind of dumb. If you, just, like, if you turn your head a little bit, it's kind of dumb. And that's the area of like all the Bloodline stuff is there. Like, So you've got like, uh, Argus and Gunfire and one who's just like, he's got a design that's kind of like Adam X-ish, where he's like just blades just all over him. <laughs> So yeah, there's a lot of ideas that were like good at the time, and then like you know, when you get to like the mid two thousands, you look back at them and go, "That was dumb." Then you get to like the mid to late twenty teens, you're like, "Actually, no, that was cool. That's fine." <laughs> so we've talked about the family and we've talked about the continuity, but sort of as and this is a big question, and I apologize. If I were to ask you why the Flash, like what specifically about the Flash speaks to you, what would you say? I think I really enjoy found family stories. It's like I'm a massive Fast and Furious fan for similar reasons. I just like the concept of this family of like different people coming together. I really like the stuff with the Wally stories where it is about like Wally and Linda and the way like Linda like literally grounds Wally and whenever he needs to like not lose himself in the speed force. It's Linda's love. I like stories about like high concept concepts of like love and family and friendship and the kind of materialization of those concepts and the flash has a bunch of that and a lot of it is the continuity as well like learning about like cobalt blue like barry allen's secret twin brother (laughs) or like the way the allen and the thorn families diverge through the timeline to the 30th century where they come together and they make impulse because the reverse flash is as much impulses well great 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 grandfather as barriers which a lot of people forget I'm trying to remember, and I feel like a lot of this, like, you, like you've said earlier, does kind of blur together. But and I realize as I say this, which perverse flash will it to me? Wasn't he in the future, and he was a big fan, and he came back and like decided to become like Barry Allen, but then wasn't? And my brain starts to unravel after a little bit of trying to explain it. But am I on the right track at all, or have I completely missed the mark? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yobard Thorne was like the, the biggest Flash fan in the world of like the the twenty. It was I think it was around the same time as John Fox. Like 26th, 27th century. It might have been as early as 23rd. So he gets like plastic surgery to look like Barry Allen and he experiments with the speed force to get speed powers and he steals the cosmic treadmill, comes back in time, winds up in the Flash Museum where he sees an exhibit that names, because in his time, the identity of the reverse Flash 
has been lost to the ages, but he sees the identity of the Reverse Flash is Yobard Thorne, which causes him, as a massive Barry Allen fan, to essentially have like a mental break, where like he can't comprehend the idea that he one day becomes the Reverse Flash, which kind of sets him on the path to become the Reverse Flash in the first place. But before then, he has like a mental break and believes that he is Barry Allen back from the dead. And so does Wally and so does Jay. But eventually they figure out the truth. And it's an amazing story. It is. And yet it also makes Back to the Future 2 look not complicated and simple and whatever else. I mean, that was just a sports almanac. They didn't have a museum based around the character. So we do have a little bit of time left. Was there anything else that you wanted to bring up? As much as I'm like a Flash fan, I think the order I've got I've become like more of a Superman fan. Oh yes. The Flash will always have like a special place in my heart, but in terms of like formative learning about Superman and like understanding Superman and understanding why he's important has been a big, big like factor in my adult stages and going from like early adulthood to like actual adulthood in like the mid twenties. Yeah, and you did an extremely excellent episode of Into It with L. Collins where you went through Grant Morrison's All Star Superman. Grant Morrison and Frank Whiteley. Oh yes. And Jamie Grant. Right, right. Like, I always feel like a lot of my answers are, like, cliche. Also, Superman is the best comic, but it, sometimes things are cliche for a reason. Sometimes there's a reason why. So when people consider Also Superman, like, the best superhero comic, that's because it is. <laughs> I'm not always... Like, if I'm going to read a Superman story, I'm not always going to read it. Like, sometimes I might be in the mood for, like, Superman and the Legion of Superheroes or Birthright or a bunch of others, but... It's just, it's the, like, platonic ideal of, like, what Superman means. Okay, and, I mean, I went on the Overdue podcast and attempted to convert them on one of their bonus episodes because they are not really comics people. And coming from my viewpoint, and really, I had just listened to your Intuit episode, so I may have cribbed a few thoughts from you, so I apologize for that. For those who haven't read All-Star Superman, if you wanted to put it together in, like, a couple of sentences to get someone to pick up that book, what would it be? Oh, like, it's the sort of thing where if you describe what it's about, you're not really going to fully explain why it's good. Especially because like, the starting premise is Superman's dying. If you if you came to me with also Superman, I didn't know what it was. And I do you want to read this book about where Superman like finds out he essentially has like super cancer? I'd be really put off by that. But in that, it's about like an exploration of what Superman means to humanity and what he represents and the ideal that he sets to us. I always say that Superman isn't an alien. Superman is the most human superhero, and also Superman is an example of that. It's, it's summed up in the Jor-El line that was used in the first Man of Steel trailer about how humanity will stumble and they will fall, but one day they will race and they will join you in the sun. That put so much in perspective for me about what Superman is and how he is the most human hero because he represents the ideal of what we can be for each other. That's why Grant Morrison says that Superman is humanity's greatest invention. It's hyperbolic, but it's not wrong. Like, you could be, like, very, like, literal and be like, well, what about penicillin? It's like, yeah, penicillin's more important. (laughs) But, yeah, Superman just... he, He and it means so much to me for, like, the example that he and it sets, both as a character and as a concept. And I think that's a lovely note for us to wrap up on. So if people wanted to find your stuff on the internet, Kieran, where would they go? The easiest place to find me is on Twitter, which is at King Impulse. So K-I-N-G-I-M-P-U-L-S-E, where you can find links to everything from there. There's a link to the website, which is goodeggpodcasts.com. You can also find it through kingimpulse.com or jimpodcast.com. All the podcasts are there. There's also, in the pinned tweet, a link to the Kickstarter for Mossy, which is fully funded. Hooray! So it's definitely happening. So if you support the Kickstarter, you'll definitely get 
whatever award tier you choose because we're fully funded. As we're recording, there's two weeks to go, so hopefully we'll at least hit the first stretch goal, which is back matter in the style of like who's who of the DC Universe, like Marvel guidebook sort of stuff. So we're hoping to get there with £400 away from that at the moment. But yeah, Mossy is on Kickstarter now. You can search for it. You can find it on my Twitter account. And that's pretty much it. You can find me at CBR most weeks, Polygon every now and then, The Guardian less so, and maybe some other places soon, depending on how job applications wind up. And Kieran's also been doing a lot of interviews and such. He was recently on War Rocket Ajax and Panel Patter, and there was another one that you mentioned before we started the show. Yeah, I was just on That's the Issue podcast with Matt and Wes, which was a really, really fun episode where we talked a bunch about Grant Morrison and Animal Man and the Grant Morrison meta-narrative theory. So yes, if you're interested in Mossy and you want to hear more about Kieran, definitely check those out. Head on over to Good Egg Podcast. They are rife with content. There is so much content, you could die. And um, patreon.com slash jayintimism, which has all the bonus content for all of the shows. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Kieran. This has been great. Thank you so much for having me. It was a blast. Kieran about cocktails. He admitted he doesn't really drink cocktails, preferring ale or lager, but quite likes amaretto sours or white Russians. Now, I too am a fan of amaretto. You would have heard me extol the virtues of amaretto and coke during my university years on a previous podcast. But the problem I've always had with amaretto sours is that there's no backbone to them. The only alcohol involved is amaretto, which is sweet and delicious, but it's only about 20% alcohol, so you're going to need a bunch of those to get by for an evening. Some places will use whiskey or bourbon or vodka in order to beef up their amaretto sour, but I decided to go back to basic flavors. Amaretto is made out of cherries, so I've used that and a very special ingredient to give this drink a little bit of backbone. In a shaker with no ice in it, combine an ounce of amaretto, half an ounce of maraschino liqueur, an ounce of lemon juice, one teaspoon of simple syrup, half an egg white, and a dash of Angostura bitters. Then add one ounce of Kirschwasser Eau de Vie. Now this is a clear brandy that's made from cherries. Starting to notice the theme? And unlike my previously disparaged cherry brandies that are bright red and look like cough syrup, Kirschwasser is 40% alcohol by volume. That's as strong as vodka. Once you have everything in a shaker, shake vigorously to emulsify the egg and make it frothy. Then add ice and shake vigorously until the outside of the vessel frosts over. Strain into a pre-chilled cocktail glass using a fine mesh strainer if you have one. You can garnish it with a cherry if you like, but honestly, with three separate cherry liqueurs in here, I'm not sure you're going to need it. The translated name for this drink is the after dinner, but in Italian, its name is Dopo Sina. Trambusto, lealta, respeto, no puede verme. Enjoy. Your time is up, my time is now. You can't see me, my time is now. It's the franchise where I'm shining now. You can't see me, my time is now.
In case you forgot or fell off, I'm still hot, knock your shell off My money stacked fat, plus I can't turn the swell off The franchise doing big business, I live this, it's automatic I win this, so you hear those horns, you finish A soldier, and I stay under the Math of You is recorded in Leichhardt, New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes are released every Wednesday, and if you'd like to be a guest on the show, simply send an email to themathofyou at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. You can follow the show on Twitter at themathofyou, and you can follow my wacky adventures at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram, and Lokified82 on Snapchat. If you have a few dollars kicking around and would like to directly support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash lokified and pledge as little as a dollar a month, or as much as you want. You could make it rain. The power is yours. You can also get rewards like cursive tweets, physical mail, and also I would just really, really appreciate it. If you'd like to support non-monetarily, you can head on over to iTunes in the country of your choice and leave a five-star rating. It helps people find the show. You can also write a review, and I'll even read it out. Won't that be nice? Next week, I'll be talking to singer-songwriter Marion Call about history, music, and how some of the best research is done in nunneries. Join me, won't you? The same reason y'all could love me is the same reason y'all condemn me. A man's measured by the way that he thinks. Not clothing lines, ice links, leather and minks. I spent 20 plus years seeking knowledge itself. So for now, Mark Breck is living life for wealth.